0: You're listening to Worldbuilding for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves.
2: Because they won't let us do pub quizzes anymore? (laughs) (laughs) I'm C.L. Polk.
0: I'm Rowena
3: Miller.
1: I'm Marsha Ryan Mareska.
3: I'm Cass Morris. And this is episode 58, La C'est Quoi?
0: Listeners, welcome back for another episode of World Building for Masochists, this time with fabulous guest C.L. Polk. Welcome. Hi. We are so excited to have you here. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and
2: tell us a little bit about you and your work? Okay. Well, hi. I'm C.L. Polk. I write fantasy novels, and um, I get mired in world building often. My first trilogy, The Kingston Cycle, has a lot of talk about politics and government in a nation where a select group of weather magicians exert a lot of political control in a nation with a parliamentary monarchy and capitalism. Excellent.
0: And um, your most recent novel, is it, is um, Midnight Bargain? Is that correct?
2: Most recent? Technically. Technically, the most recent novel is the last book of the King's oh, okay. like Soul Star. Okay. But I have a standalone novel called The Midnight Bargain. And it doesn't have a lot of stuff about politics and government in it. What it has is a lot of fashion, a lot of like wealth accumulated through international trade.
0: Yes, it's a different, different kind of political undercurrent in, in that book. It's not overtly about the politics, but I love how you weave in that it's like, it's there, there's a governmental system there and it's it's part of the influence. It's really well done. Oh, thank you. So we wanted to dive in today. We have talked about forms of government and types of government on the podcast in the past, but to get into a little bit more of, I guess you might say like the philosophical bones of government and how the decisions that we make about what kinds of governments we're going to include and what their goals are are going to affect the rest of the world building and and all of that jazz. So <laughs> I guess I wanted to start there maybe by asking, what are the goals of writing politics in fantasy? Either for you or more broadly, if you have broad overarching <laughs> thoughts.
1: <laughs> One of the things that like I constantly think about and on... Our discord server with our wonderful wonderful listeners we actually had a big conversation about this not too long ago about the difference between what the government was designed to do and then how that actually works in terms of how things actually happen and how they work i think that's a great thing to dive into when you're designing the government of your of your cultures and of your world is well what did they mean to do when they when they when they designed it, and then what actually happened, after, despite what they meant to do, how it,
2: how it started, how, how it's, it's going. going. <laughs> kind of was thinking about like when I write, and I specifically, I always think about the state. Like it's super, duper important to me. Um, I find that my preference is to write about um states that are flawed on the practical level because. It's really fertile ground for complaining revolutions and otherwise. (laughs) I'd like to focus on a state's problems, but it's not that I want to say, oh, this state is good, or that this state is bad. I actually want to examine it and ask this question first. Can the state's problems be fixed or not? And the next question is, okay, so what do we do about it?
3: I mean, I think that's a great angle, because... Clearly, we as humans have not yet hit upon a perfect system of government, a perfect state. We don't yet know what that is. We have theories. We're always sort of trying to reach that more perfect union in a way. But every type of state is flawed in some fashion because humans are flawed and humans make mistakes and humans don't always have great intentions. And I think you're right. There's just so much fun to explore there in in the
0: different tensions and different dynamics that you can get with that. It does strike me as interesting that we as writers, unlike, I hope, state and nation builders in the real world, often want to create bad states, at least flawed (laughs) states in one way or another. Like we're setting out on purpose to write a state that has key flaws or is just overarchingly bad. Like there, there are insurmountable problems with it because that is a key function of story in one way or another. And I think it is kind of interesting, you know, what you were saying, that this is how we can examine questions of government, right? Like, we set up the house of cards to, to pull it out and, and look at, like, okay, so what at the core makes a government bad, in quotes, you know, <laughs> what, what flaw is, is corrupting or destroying or otherwise causing the problem?
1: Right. Which is why I love asking that. What was the original intention question? Because, it's, you know, like the founding people of whatever nation weren't like, guys, I have come up with this system. It's so bad. It's so bad. It's <laughs> going to mess everything up. We got to do this.
2: <laughs> we have a few, a very few examples of like somebody who is like, I've come up with a plan that will make a state that is wonderful hooray let's do it and you know like we all know how those turned out <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I i really believe that there's something to admire as somebody who has like a big vision and wants to transform a society in order to like make it fit their idea of like, you know, what does our government need to do in order to make this a great place to live? Whereas the practical the practical application of this is basically, we want a revolution. No, this faction needs to be in charge. No, this faction needs to be in charge. Holy shit! Lenin's got the ball! He's running to the end! So it's communism, folks! Like... <laughs> I, because sometimes it's just like this weird accident.
3: I was thinking that, too. Like like Marshall says, you know, what was the original intent? But I think the question before that is, was there an original intent? Or did this state come about by complete accident? Like, did we all sit down and write a constitution and vote on it and ratify it in this <laughs> semi-orderly process um, involving lots of speeches and yelling at each other? Or did our state come together in bits and globs over time? And and our law is sort of all common law, and is it even written down? And, and is the government system even written down? And I think that's an interesting place to start too. Like, how did the state even form to begin with? And then how close is it still to whatever its origins were?
1: Let alone the, oh, things are bad, so let's have a revolution. Okay, well, we had the revolution and we won.
3: Oh, oh no, things What's are still bad. What's step
1: two?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Revolution did
0: not you just get on the like, did not infect the pendulum swing of France
3: mm-hmm. for like
0: the better part of a century. There, like, let's revolt and whoa, what happened? Whoops, oh, we're back over here again. <laughs> <Let's> revolt, <laughs> vive la commune, what happened? Oh, god. So, I think I mean, the question of, like, how long has your idealistic revolution even like resulted in change? How, how long has this epoch in your state even been is a valid question.
2: I think there's something to the idea that if you're talking about a state, that it pretty much has kind of like a, a time where whatever was originally intended, by the time you get to about 250 years of running the experiment, you are either in a completely <laughs> different place where, than where you began, or you're going to be there very
1: soon. <laughs> What a strangely specific number.
2: As the the three Americans (laughs) look at each other going, hmm. (laughs) 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 Why do I hear the Jeopardy music?
0: (laughs) Well, and one question I think of, too, um, depending on what kind of story you're writing, how much does the state and its philosophical bones even show up? Right? Because there are certain kinds of stories that aren't going to show it very much. But it strikes me as interesting that almost any story is going to get some of it in there. Right? Like, you're writing military sci-fi. Like, well, why are they fighting? You're writing, you know, a a kind of comedy of manners kind of story. Well, what social mores are tied to political realities? Like, there's these little threads that are going to run through almost any story that you can come up with that's going to come back to that question of, well, what is your state? And what's their bag?
2: (laughs) I love building states. I really, really do. And I always tend to start The same way. I have some questions that I always ask myself about where I am. I ask myself, who's in power? And then I ask myself, how do they structure their government in order to use that power? And then I ask, what are they using that power to do? And then finally, how do they make sure that nobody else can take that power from them? Okay, maybe that's cynical, but (laughs) I ask those four questions and The brain gears are turning at this point. Like, I need those four questions in order to write a novel. Everything that comes after those four questions is just me going into detail about
1: them. Those are four really solid questions, though, in terms of understanding what your government is going to be and how it works.
3: Take note, listeners. Take note. (laughs) Because it does. It tells you, like, it it will inform other things. How much is your government in bed with your military or with your religion or with your mercantile system like answering those questions will lead you to the other things that we think about when we think about world building
0: and there are so many questions in terms of how a state functions is tied to other parts of the world whether those parts are you know what technological level are you at is going to inform certain functions of government and what kind of like size um, of your nation what kind of neighbors do they have like what does the geography look like like these are going to inform elements of state too it's fun how it all can kind of tie together but you're right that asking the questions about the human element like how does power work who is there who is doing things is super important for like the bones of not just good state building but good good story and world building
1: I think that neighbor question is such a critical thing. Like, because who you are going to be is so defined by who your neighbors are. Like, the U.S. could not and would not be what it is if it didn't, if the gigantic unguarded border to the north didn't have pretty much friendly people who, you know, <laughs> of <laughs> relatively similar values.
2: I I guess, yeah. I mean, you have an entire nation of... Canadians you have to deal with us all the time and you know sometimes I'm sorry sometimes I'm not sorry at all I like our neighbors personally I, I do too that out there. Same. Same.
1: And I don't think it's quite this way anymore but like back in the 80s and 90s it was just the most casual border ever <laughs> and oh yeah
2: oh god I used to yeah because I used to live close to the border and I would like literally cross the border because I wanted a specific American candy <laughs> and then I would turn around and go home
1: I, I was in Niagara Falls once and you know cross the bridge at the border and it's just a guy who's like hey where are you born us all right have a good time like that was yeah. the <laughs> full measure of border security there at that point in time but but like it works because there is you know two neighbors that have pretty solid relations between each other and nobody's particularly worried about espionage across the u.s canadian border or or let alone invasion
2: it's like what are we gonna do make y'all wear toques
1: <laughs> there's worse fates
0: <laughs> honestly i mean i'm from the great lakes region i volunteer to wear a toque it's cool
1: <laughs> but yeah if you've got if you are bordered with you know Nasty invaders who want to take all your stuff, you're going to have a more militarized country that's going to have to like guard that border just because if you don't, they're going to come. And that's the that's
0: <laughs> or or you solve the problem in other ways, like lots of espionage or bribery or other kinds of intrigue, or your country just changes size a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You can also have the situation where your next nearest border is kind of like your big cousin who has a lot of clout to throw around. And they're just like, you know, don't you talk to me or my little buddy ever again. Um, And so, you know, you have this good relationship, but at the same time, you have to make sure that you maintain this good relationship, which means that you can't, you know, you can't, you don't have free reign to just kind of change the system however the heck you want, because you need to keep your, your big buddy happy with you. <laughs> so it's not like when you have like this, this tiny little, this tiny little like country, and um, all of a sudden you're like, you know what, this monarchy thing sucks. Um, we're gonna run a government. And it's going to be a democracy. And what we're going to do is everybody who's eligible um, gets their names thrown into a pot. And if their name gets drawn, they're on parliamentary duty for the next two years. And uh, that's how we're going to do it. It's like, hold on.
1: <laughs> Let alone if the the complexities of alliances and connections and if you have you know a system of nobility or such then if you have intermarriages and all that so it's like we've killed all of our kings and we're starting a democracy and the nation next door is like um yeah see your queen that you just killed was our king's daughter so now we're mad <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and we're gonna come in here and have a few things to say about your new government
2: Well, a lot
0: of the questions that we're like exploring, too, there's the question of how centralized is the government even to begin with? Do you even have a centralized state to take these concerns to or to be the one worrying about the border? Or are you dealing with something that's more like tiny feudal city states that are perhaps allying with each other sometimes and other times are all doing their own thing? And it's interesting, I think, because we tend to presume centralized versus decentralized fit particular niches of sci-fi and fantasy writing. And mm-hmm. in some ways that makes sense because it's it's hard to envision a very technologically advanced world where we don't have a more centralized government. But you could poke that bear and see what happens when you have, say, a bunch of feudal city-states instead of centralized government in Spaces that we usually think of as having centralized government. You know, can you do an age of sale novel with no huge nations? Can you do a gunpowder fantasy with feudal city states? Like, play with it, see what you come up with.
2: Yeah, I mean, the thing about like a lot of centralized governments and fantasies, I think, is due to like literal centuries of successful marketing of the idea of kings. (laughs) Like, (laughs) they they have a great publicity team (laughs) they really really do Um, it's just sort of like when you have this one person who was literally born to run a whole country they were raised and educated in the stuff that their previous like generations believed that they needed to know in order to be the monarch and oh also they get to do whatever the heck they want (laughs) like There's just something really, really, really seductive about that. Even though kings are wrong.
3: Wrong, (laughs) but dramatic. Like, I think that's part of why we're so attracted to monarchy in these fantasy stories, is that there's so much drama behind it. And and you can get into, you know, the, the court intrigue is just... I don't know. It has a different aesthetic, a different flavor when you're dealing with a monarchy as opposed to the court intrigue of a representative government, as opposed to the House of Representatives snarking at each other.
0: Like, both can be fun, but it's a different flavor of fun. Well, and I think we can, like, poke around with that question, too, of kings are wrong. Like, on what metric? Like, I think we probably, <laughs> in this call, all would say that we have a preference for democratic forms of government. Um, And that we would classify those on our value system as good as opposed to like an absolute monarchy. But I think it's interesting to like, okay, so which values are we relying on to make those judgments? And how do we translate that like into the writing itself? Um, I mean, in some ways, an absolute monarchy, if your value is efficiency, it's fairly efficient in a lot of ways. You know, democratic forms of government, we can be extremely inefficient. Like mm-hmm. you want to build a bridge, we're going to argue about it for like a year before we finally decide like where the bridge will go and who is going to be tasked with doing it and then we're going to fall apart a year later. Whereas a king's like, "Yes, make it so." And the bridge theoretically happens.
2: Yeah, because you have to live up to that king's expectations. It's like, "I said I want a bridge. Where's my stake and bridge?" Right. <laughs> And off with your head because you didn't do it. But, like,
0: the bridge (coughs) happens. Whereas I I think we we can show in plenty of examples of representative government where we are not quite as decisive or efficient. Now, if you are worried about safeguarding liberty and all of that jazz, you know, having the people's voice heard, efficiency is not a great metric you kind of want to be inefficient in some ways or else you bulldoze people who like have things like rights that we believe in.
2: Yeah. And because like, okay, so right now I'm doing a reread of a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jay Jacobs. It's been a really long time since I read it. But one of the things that really struck me was that so many city planners in the middle of the 20th century were really they were about their vision they were about their ideal and they were about their efficiency and they didn't give a crap about the people actually on the ground they had an idea of what a city was supposed to look like and if you lived in a neighborhood that didn't fit that description you automatically lived in a slum and it didn't matter how cool your neighborhood was. They wanted to fix it. And I think that kinda of goes with my my suspicion of kings as like this one person <laughs> who has this idea, but the reality of the place that they're trying to change isn't visible to them. And so I think I think of a king as somebody who like doesn't know. They have no idea what it's like to be a peasant or a serf or whatever. And They don't care. (laughs) Or even if they do care, they are extremely limited in their
0: actual capacity to get it. Yes. Like, even if you have the most ideal, compassionate human, it is one human who is fallible and limited.
2: Yes. And so even if you have a king who, you know, really wants to do their best, I think it's kind of inevitable that they're going to have that. It's one banana. How much could it cost? Ten (laughs) dollars moment.
1: I wonder if that's why in, you know, traditional fantasy, there is that common trope of the farm boy king is like, look, he had these humble origins. So he knows he knows what it's really like. And thus he becomes the quote unquote good king that gets there in the end. And I mean, I think that's also just part of the why monarchies have that level of appeal within traditional fantasy is because then with that singular ruler, you can easily make that distinction of this one was a bad king thus things are bad here is a good king now things are good happy ending we're done and <laughs> it's never that neat but you know you can sand off all the edges to try and make it that neat within within that context yeah
2: i think it would be really great to actually like read a novel a fantasy novel about a regime change like i'm thinking of the goblin emperor as part of this, like that's very definitely in the target of what it is I am talking about. But the idea of starting a novel and what's going on in the, the big picture background is the the ruler or the governing body has changed and they wanna do all this stuff. I'm kind of into it, like all the way to like showing up to like planning group meetings about <laughs> how to revitalize a neighborhood or how to, like, improve yields in agriculture. Just, like, these completely detail-oriented, wonky, just nerd-out meetings. I love this. Why would they let me write a book about this? (laughs) I think that they should. But I think it's it's interesting,
0: too, because if you take – if you take that idea of, like, what, what, what meeting do I want to write about? Like, and you pull back and imagine that regime change. One of the fundamental questions that they must be asking themselves is, what's the government's job? Like, what is the job of our state? And I think that a lot of times when we get into the more, like, esoteric political arguments, like, that's fundamentally what's what's being debated. Like, what is the function of a state? What's its job? And so I think that, like, if you can, can pick at that, like that can do some good stuff, right? Like, is it the function of of our governmental entity to be concerned with X, Y, or Z? And then how does that play out? And how does that then reflect the values of those who are in
1: power? I only read the first one of the Powder Mage books, but it does kind of delve into that because it begins with, okay, we've killed the entire royal line. Now the revolution is won. Now what? But then also is like, you idiots! The divine right of kings was literally divine. Now the gods are mad. <laughs> 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 you fools! Why did you do that? But it does have all. It does have that level of like. Okay, now let's figure out what the government's going to be now that we've done this. Well,
3: in thinking back to that that need, that purpose, what is a state's job? I think we tend to see the slide towards authoritarianism and monarchy and other you know, more condensed forms of leadership, when the state's job is viewed by the populace as protection, as defense, more than other purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that's, that's sort of why a lot of human history when when we've had higher proportions of warfare in your daily life, I guess, all the German city (laughs) states, you know, fighting each other, things like that, trends in that direction. And I think it's why in the last few decades of american government we've seen an attempt to make us think that we are in jeopardy in order to push sort of away from the liberty and towards efficiency and security on on that sliding scale it's it's interesting to think about how that function of government is not necessarily what is actually true but perhaps also what is perceived by the populace to be true what do we need it for what do we think we need it for
1: and whose job is it to move the populace's perception.
2: Oh, see, I, I have a thing <laughs> that I think about sometimes. It's like I I had a shower thought, and, and it was this. The state is always telling you a story. And the state needs you to believe that story. And every time someone believes in the story of the state, the state gains more freedom to do its work.
3: It's like clap if you believe in fairies, but... <laughs> for government
2: <laughs> because it's like if the state gives you a story and you have a place in that story you have a, a place in contributing to the greatness of the story of the state then you know you can get up and go to work in the morning and it means something and so like I'm, I'm thinking like when I am the creator of an imaginary state state i have the opportunity to design the story that this particular state is telling its people and also i get to decide if it's a con job or if it's the ideal that they are constantly striving towards and like these are different stories and it isn't that like it isn't necessarily that the the story where it's like they're telling the story of what it is that they idealize and what it is that they want to achieve, means that the state is necessarily good, and we keep coming back to it. But the other thing, too, is that you can have a thing where it's like these are our principles, and then you have tons of people within the state who have really, really different ideas about how to fulfill the promises that the state is telling its people.
1: I had such a delightful time writing all the propaganda bits in of the occupying government in velocity of revolution for just that reason of like what's the story that they're telling and how much do they themselves buy their own bullshit and and how do we how do we express that within the things the media that we're seeing within the context of the world
0: I mean the the best bullshit has a has a little like at least a little grain of truth to it or at least something that you can latch on to <laughs> as a real ideal. And it's like it's 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 the the corruption of the real ideal that that produces the most odious bullshit. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm just remembering there's this uh, Dustin Hoffman movie from the 90s called Hero that like nobody but me saw. But there's one part where he's he he plays this complete low life guy who happens to be in the right place to do the right thing and does it but then other people get credit and it's it's a whole complicated thing but at one point he's explaining what's going on to his son and he just goes look the whole world is bullshit but it's layers of bullshit and you just got to find your layer that you're happy with and that's your bullshit
3: <laughs> <laughs> i love that <laughs> but to to go back to that idea of of the story that the, um, that the state tells of itself. And to go back to our earlier question about how centralized or decentralized is your country, I think the question of how is that story told and communicated within the world is also important. You know, do they have a press? Do they have mass media? Do they have broadsheets getting delivered? Or is it reliant on something else? Is it reliant upon the monarch going on progress uh, throughout the country and visiting different towns? Is it a small enough state that somebody speaking in the town square, you know, eventually everybody in the town will have heard about it by midnight. How does that story get disseminated? And what effect does that have on how much it is believed and bought
2: into?
1: And who's controlling who else disseminates what they have to say?
2: Also, if you have a state and what they do is they have a system where they deliver the news or decrees or whatever by messenger, like, what's to stop the Duke of this like little corner of the realm from like basically subverting that messenger so that they can tell their people in their isolated little pocket of the land that this is how it is and like make up whatever rules they want. And then how do you discover that misinformation? How do you how do you break that? misinformation
0: man if we could solve that problem
3: that would be,
0: <laughs> yeah. oh, that would be super cool
3: I'm, oh. I'm picturing this duke in like his his like equivalent of the orkney isles with like a printing press in his basement and he's just like he copies the format of the king's decrees and it's like no this is totally legit but he's like counterfeiting it just to be whatever he wants i'm just i think that'd be funny i like i like printing presses too. <laughs> well
0: and then and then the question is right depending on whether it is a bad quote-unquote or good quote-unquote king is that duke a villain or hero why is he subverting the message and what is the outcome and you know the story that you write is very dependent upon how are we framing that's true the big government versus the tiny little revolution or coup happening in this duke's basement. I, I
3: was picturing, I was Literally. picturing like a scheming duke who, you know, maybe it's not that the monarch's good, but they're just, you know, rivals. But instead now I'm picturing like this duke who's just like, man, the world's a bummer. I don't want to bum my people out. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to tell them happy stories instead.
0: <laughs> or even just going back to what you were saying about the king can't possibly know what's best for everyone. This guy gets the message and is like, Well, we're not doing that. This is a terrible idea. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to levy taxes of 5% per household to fortify our border. We're on a damn island. This is We're fine. We're not doing that. Save your potatoes.
1: We're not growing oranges. It's winter for...
2: (laughs) This is silly as hell, and I don't know what you're doing. I know that, like, social studies and history are kind of, like, kind of boring subjects in school but oh god i love this stuff no they're the
0: best they're the best subjects i think this is a group of people who all enjoyed our social studies courses in school i wanted
3: more oh, yeah. civics i was mad that like they skipped <laughs> no. like half a year of ours for dumb like testing reasons like oh no we have to teach you this instead for the standardized test and i was
2: like but yeah. but but park, no but But, <laughs> but i want to know how to bug my city counselor exactly. to get a new park. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I had a whole procedural thing that I cut out of Way of the Shield because my, one of my beta readers is like, listen, I actually like take notes for the for the state legislature and I'm falling asleep. <laughs> 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 this, this is too wonky. <laughs>
2: I think this is where when you are writing about like the inner workings of government. I mean, I kind of expect that people who are reading my books are interested in what's going on under their head politically. <laughs> as it is but what i'd really love to do is i really love to make the political struggles a reflection of like intercharacter struggles yes so when somebody is arguing like is nitpicking over a particular point of order in a meeting what they're actually doing is, is that they're dragging the section of the meeting out so that their buddy outside the office is like performing some kind of political skullduggery to actually get them what they want. Um, I'm, I'm glued to it. It's like, Oh yeah, this is great.
1: I, I love those things. But also where they use, they use the procedural stuff on a story level to like, to screw things up and drag things out. I'm reminded of one of the early episodes of Rome where because, <laughs> Cast just lights up <laughs> and I mentioned well <laughs> where because at like the Senate meeting they were about to do a thing but then trouble happened and so there was not the final like hammer of like yes okay we're done so session that session had not been never... closed yeah the session had not been closed so it's like okay then technically we can still do this thing but then it gets screwed up anyway Be- but like because, but the because fact that there we... was this guy who was just like <laughs> who was a stickler of like, no, the session has not been closed. Well, because so, like, therefore... it was,
3: if session had been closed, then the debate was final. And it's like, oh, we're at war now. <laughs> if session's not closed, we might not be at war yet. <laughs> Let's please reopen the session. <laughs> please? <laughs> please, maybe? Uh, it also makes me think of, um, the, the West Wing strategy that happened. I think it was in season six when, they like hid all of the house members in an office so that um, the opposing party would call the vote thinking they had, you know- Everybody was out of town. Yeah, thinking everyone was out of town. And then that actually happened and I think it was the UK parliament. I might be wrong about that, about which country it was, (laughs) but some real life parliament took inspiration from that episode and actually used that procedural trick of like stashing everyone in a closet (laughs) and then bringing them out once the vote had been called.
2: AMAZING like I I just
1: but those are the delightful little wonky levels of power of like who gets to call a vote who gets to decide yes we're actually voting on this and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call the vote because I know everybody's in town and I don't want them to vote for it or can you as is happening in Texas right now hide so that there's not a quorum and they can't vote (laughs) And,
3: and if that goes on long enough are they going to try to arrest you (laughs)
2: i mean the the situation in texas especially like it is high drama when i heard that they all like left the state i was just like my jaw was on the ground it's like they did what oh my god
1: (laughs) and that's kind of the fun of building a complicated (laughs) system that has all these different rules and levers and all that because then you can have these weird tricks of like, well, they've got the votes, but we can just not show up and, and force them. It's like, well, or they've got the votes, but I can just not call for the vote. And so therefore, or I can decide that the <laughs> session is closed and therefore we're at war. Too bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of funny too, right? Because from like, an, like a, a story writing fun twist perspective, this stuff is so much fun. From a like, how well are we upholding the ideals that our government was created for? It's kind of like, oh shit, we can use the government to do that. <laughs> that was that was not that was not the plan. We were that was not we wanted like voice of the the people and you're like, but you're tricking them into not being and but you're tricking them into not being. and what do you? so it's kind of interesting to see all the fun ways in which you can break the ideals and for what purposes, right? Like, I don't, I think, again, most people go into doing what they're going to do in any setting, but especially, you know, in, you know, trying to assert politics one way or the other, because they think that they're doing the right thing for whatever reasons. And I think that you can really play with that in fiction writing in terms of like, so, we all agree that this is the ideal at the center. But, you know, as you were saying, we disagree about how to get there. Or in truth, we, we don't really uphold that particular ideal because we no longer believe in it for whatever reason. But we keep it here because it's part of the story. And it's a nice sounding part of the narrative, but we kind of ignore it. Like, what reasons have we broken away from the ideal? And how, how do you reconcile that?
1: Or because we had this ideal then we didn't actually write down a rule about how to do this sort of thing because we feared everybody who was going to be involved would stand up to this ideal. So why would we actually need to write down a rule? Oops.
0: No (laughs) one would possibly do this.
1: And then 30 years later, it's like, well, there's not a rule that says I can't. So therefore...
2: Or they write down a rule that is so incredibly specific to its time and place (laughs) that trying to change it in order to reflect the reality of hundreds of years passing creates a crisis (laughs) at the most basic level where people are like, we can't do this or this secret document that tells us what our state is about will be nullified and then we will be worth nothing. And then what will we do? And I was like, can we just maybe give women the vote?
1: <laughs> this this no, whole really episode is just subtweeting the American government.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, not just the American government.
2: I don't think. Yeah, I point. mean, like, like this happens a lot. Like, I mean, in Canada, we had to have a great big argument over whether women were persons and therefore could vote. Like, I mean, this is something that we had to do because the original rules didn't actually like they s- specifically excluded certain people from being able to vote and now we're like you know what that that idea was dumb and we should change it <laughs> well i think even the question of who gets to vote is reflecting really basic
0: concepts of the values of a government and what it believes its job is like when you go back to some of the earlier english voting laws that were all tied to land ownership Like, clearly that's saying something pretty specific about what the function of government is, what you value about the government and about, you know, the the nation as a whole. If you're saying people who have land have a stake and therefore can vote. And then when you get into those debates about, okay, so universal suffrage then, because workers who do not have land also have stake and should be able to vote. And we're still ignoring, like, women and um, swells the population uh, that way because what stake do you have? I don't know. Yeah, But, you know, it's it's interesting to see how that, like, reflects. Like, okay, well, what are you saying when you're saying someone should be able to vote? Who
2: are you valuing? And it's a really good question. It goes back to who has the power? And also, what do they do to make sure that they get to keep the power?
0: And sometimes extending some freedoms or rights to people helps you keep in power in convoluted ways of thinking. But I think there's, I think it's interesting because this the fact that every time that we have expanded, expanded rights and, and expanded access, remembering that the reasons people did that may not have been purely altruistic um, can translate to some good stuff in fiction writing too. Like... Not everyone who wants to see measures passed wants to see those for reasons that don't involve, you know, holding on to their power.
3: And it makes me think, too, of the the ways in which representative governments are harder to maintain than monarchies, generally, because they require so much investment from the populace. And deciding what section of the populace gets to have that say and what information do they need to have to have that say. For it to work well, you sort of need a populace that is both interested and somewhat educated on on the issues and on their civic rights and on all those those factors. And we think of ourselves as having universal suffrage today, but accessibility isn't always equal and it only kicks in at a certain age, which is an entirely arbitrary number. There's still all of these <laughs> these these questions, you know, around who gets to participate, and how much do they participate, and what do we need to do as a society to prepare them to
0: participate in the state? Yeah, that 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 whole—you can't draft us and and not even let us vote. Oh, okay, so I guess you can vote. No, that was not that wasn't. Po- oh. We weren't. That was not the point. Oh, damn it. Okay, well, we get to vote. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but also, then, not only who gets to vote, but how do you vote, and how is that? process handled and who's in charge of that process in the first place because those are those are fun things to play with too or nightmares to live through depending on your (laughs) depending on your point of view
2: so i i don't know if any of you like because we mentioned the west wing but i'm wondering if any of you actually like watched scandal oh yeah because it is Rotten with politics. It's wonderful (laughs) that way because it's like somebody who isn't actually involved in politics, except is heavily involved in politics, um, and just watching all of the scheming and the maneuvering and the the positioning of this and that and how like reputations can hang by a thread and all. It's like really great and and I mean it's also soapy as hell. So why not watch (laughs) it?
1: Right, because there is is so much in there of how basically this handful of people who nobody elected, nobody chose, nobody appointed, who just wield so much power in terms of public opinion and who actually has the levers of power of of government because they can make or break somebody, save or, or destroy somebody, almost at their whim. And it's about which client pays them first.
2: Yeah, and, like, there's all kinds of ways to get kind of, like, leverage because you can know somebody's secret and be able to, like, control them through that. But you could just buy a politician if you want to. <laughs> and and it's just sort of, like, it's it's a... It was always, like, when I was watching it, there was always something going on where I was like, oh, that would work in a book really, really well. <laughs> and And so it was, like, kind of, like, the West Wing on one side and Scandal on the other kind of, like, showed me these two contrasting kinds of, like, ideas and ideals. And so, like, you know, I wind up re-watching the first, like, say, four or five seasons of each of these shows over and over again.
0: Well, and I think that leads to looping back around on when we're deciding, is a government good? Is it bad? And that there's a difference between the ideal... And the execution and all of the ways in which the ideal can be undermined by things that have nothing to do with formalized structure of the government at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, how much does money play into it? How much does the
3: media play into it? Um, Something that Kate Mm -hmm. Elliott did well in Unconquerable Son, I thought, was the way that the omnipresent media affects the governmental structure there and and how critical it is to keep control through presentation was really interesting is bribery a factor it was illegal in the roman republic that did not stop anyone from doing it it was expected that if you (laughs) wanted votes you were going to bribe people you budgeted for that all of these different um like i said before sort of pressure points and tensions and then i think when we're talking about speculative fiction we can also add in magic how does that change our equation how does that tip the balance of power uh, if it's open or if it's secret, does that affect how it, it affects the, the weights of power as
2: well? Oh my gosh, I just thought of the Manchurian candidate with wizards. <laughs>
1: yes!
2: Yes! <laughs>
1: like, I think when you add magic into the mix, the question of why aren't mages just in charge? Why is, or are they? And And if so, are they openly or secretly like is there is it a thing of just like the mages don't run the government but they each of them has some government official that's just their puppet like literally (laughs) and and it's just (laughs) accepted that that's how it's gonna be
2: yeah and like and you could just have like an open mageocracy and just have it so that like magicians have the power and they got the power (laughs) <laughs> and then what happens? And, and then all of a sudden your farm boy really can become a king because now he's a wizard. <laughs> and so he goes away to the big city and like joins the government. And and, and there you go. You, you have a beloved trope and you're doing it differently.
3: <laughs> yeah. Is it a path to power? Is it an obstacle? Is it the engine of power? There's a lot of different levels there. I've had a lot of fun playing in in the oven cycle with the idea that mages are specifically legally prohibited from attaining high office. They can hold lower offices, but not high office because that'd be too much power in one hand. And our protagonist, you know, Sempronius is trying to do that. He, He thinks it's unfair that that thing you're born with should prohibit you from taking power. And on the one hand, Maybe he's right, and it is not fair that a whole section of society is prohibited these offices. But on the other hand, you can also see how opening that door might lead to places he doesn't intend, and might lead to a very different form of government than the one he thinks he's advocating for. And that, too, is once again playing out that, where did we start? What did we intend with the state? And where might it go? How does it spin out? <laughs> how does it spin wildly off the side That's of the fun. mountain? <laughs>
0: I think, too, the question of magic of how much is overtly out there part of the system and how much is running as an undercurrent, like a lot of the things in our political system that give us what is the narrative of the state or even just how does the state function, we don't see them very much, but they're there, like how much the media is is giving us elements of of what our political World looks like right, like we don't see all the machinations there, but it's there and it's and it's affecting you know how how we perceive and engage with with um, politics.
3: I'm very distressed by the idea that lobbyists are our mages in that sense. <laughs> that, <laughs> that Lobbyists yeah. are the ones behind the scenes uh. casting their spells and making us all do their bidding.
0: Right? But like, but like, wouldn't that a, in a lot of ways make a lot of it sense, would though? It right? would like. That you have this influence kind of under undercurrent happening, it's it's affecting what the narrative is. It's affecting what the what the you know influence one way or the other is. And I kind of played with that <laughs> in um, in in my book <laughs> that one of the other nations that they have contact with their one of their big secrets is that they can use magic just to influence how people think and feel about something. So you go into the chamber to vote, and all of a sudden you're thinking, actually, I think I should vote for this measure. And, oh, oh, look, oops. <laughs> now we've oh, influenced no. outcomes without anyone really knowing why.
1: Let alone the more blatant lobbying of like, oh, what would it take to get your vote? Oh, you you want that? I can summon a demon that'll give you that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Again, coming back to our what is good, what is bad, what is inherently good or bad about a system is determined by, in a lot of ways, you, the writer, and how it plays out and how it's described and created as ideal versus pragmatic. So you could have magic working in very comfortable ways in your your state if you're not us with minds that immediately go to all the worst case scenarios.
1: You you have your Senate chamber or whatever with awards so that every like spell that can control or influence people is shattered if you go, when you go onto the voting floor. So, yes. So you
0: could you could have like truth magic.
1: Ooh yeah.
3: Ooh, something really neat in HG Perry's recent books, Declaration of the Rights of Magicians and and the sequel, is the idea that the halls of Parliament are magically responsive to really good speeches that they like resonate and hum with music when the rhetoric is good. And I was like, I love it. (laughs) Install that everywhere. Like it's not like it's overtly influencing (laughs) you and and, like it's value neutral. It's not responding to the substance of what you're saying, but it responds to the words and the power, like, oh, that was really well-framed. That was nicely structured. (laughs) And the walls just start vibrating with excitement over it.
1: so you can go full west wing and get it and get scored while you give your resounding speech and, and...
0: <laughs> well i mean it's it's funny that we all kind of react with this like you know mild horror to the idea of magic influencing politics in some way that's you know not overt that's under the surface but it's like i mean not to sound like a freshman english teacher but rhetoric is magic in some ways and that it influences how you think about things in non-overt ways, under the surface, and we are all very comfortable, not comfortable, but, you know, plugged into a world where that's just how it works.
2: The other thing, too, is that, like, we've had a lot of time to figure out how to, like, tailor our communications to manipulate people's feelings, and that this is, like... This is what we use to get what we want. Whether it's for you to buy a new Volvo or for you to vote for sugar subsidies, (laughs) uh, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like This is a tool. Everybody, Everybody who has the will and skill to use it is using it right now.
0: Well, I mean, I feel like social media is such a part of our lives now that we kind of forget how like bonkers confusing it was for people like when it first came out in terms of how do we use this how do we how do we optimize our use of this form of media to do exactly that how do we make it do what we want um and I think we're really used to seeing it now but for a while there it was kind of like experiments gone awry and people trying to use it for their purposes and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't
2: yeah i mean thinking about that i i didn't i didn't get on twitter until 2009 and by then people had figured it out they hadn't elevated it to a higher manipulation but people knew they knew the like they knew how to like pack impact into 141 characters or however many it was sometimes you could just have good silly fun and other times you could like transmit a single sentence that would make somebody think about it all day long. And now it's like so many people are so good at condensing their message into a tweet or if they need to do multiple tweets into hooking the person into reading the next tweet that you have to be exceptional (laughs) to get noticed anymore.
0: I just had the random thought train of like Twitter communication being a form of currency and then realized, Oh God, we forgot to even talk about currency during this episode. Oh, no. Oh my God. And that's probably an entirely separate rabbit hole for another day that you're going to have to come back for.
2: Get, yeah. Get somebody who doesn't, who understands money because I don't <laughs> make Django do it.
0: So barring any, final thoughts or ideas or burning questions for the group we're coming up on our hour and it is our custom to ask our guest to give us a little piece of world building trivia to to keep in our souvenir box so it can relate to our episode today or it can be something entirely random and off the cuff but I'm sure it'll be entirely you
2: whatever it is Okay, so thinking about the idea of the role of the wizard in government, and I'm thinking that about like how do you keep how do you keep wizards from taking over a government entirely until you have like full mageocracy, and what they decide is like what happens, and I think probably what you need to do is you need to create a system where if a magician walks. Into a government building Their ability to do magic is Nullified And people think that this is a great idea This is the perfect solution We can have a wizard prime minister Because while the wizard prime minister Is doing their prime ministerly Duties in the house of parliament They can't actually Call upon their magic to make people do Funky things Enter the wizard lobbyist
3: (laughs) I both love and Hate it (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, me too. It's disgusting, but it's a
0: fantastic <laughs> plot device, just waiting, yes. for blossoming. It's it's a premise that, that is, is premise. asking for for a short story, if not more.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, I'm just now visualizing these wizard lobbyists just like on the outer steps of the building, like just know exactly where the line is.
0: <laughs> yeah it's like the sign that goes uh-huh. up like no no campaign materials past this past point, this point. Voting area, it's no magic past this no point.
1: magic past this point yeah
0: government area
1: but it's still like hey we want you to vote this way and uh i've got a few incubuses on speed dial and we can you know we can get you what you need <laughs> <laughs> so corrupt oh my
2: gosh miles of ink worth of an idea
1: i love it
0: well, C.L. Polk, thank you so much for coming and joining us this evening. It has been so much fun talking to you and digging into all of the ideals and less than ideals of the state.
2: <laughs> I, I just love the fact that we just, like, jumped on the train to disaster. <laughs> like this, We're all very optimistic like, people. Like... <laughs> It's like, this is where I live, right here, in the worst case scenario.
1: (laughs) Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on September 15th, where we'll be going back to the world we've been creating and talking about integrating many different wild ideas into a richer, more complex, more complete world. I'd also like to remind you that we are finalists for the Hugo Award for Best Fancast. If you are eligible to vote for the Hugos, we would love your consideration. And if you want to learn how you can be eligible, visit Discon3.org. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come to chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all Build until it hurts.